It's so good to see you guys. Uh, we are in the Advent season. Uh, this is a time for us to reflect on the coming of Christ. And uh, he came 2,000 years ago. Here we are. 2,000 years later, the whole world pauses for a month to celebrate his arrival uh, with lights, with presents, with singing, with food, uh, with sweaters, just everything we can think of. We're celebrating the birth of a baby born 2,000 years ago. When he was born, on the night he was born, the heavens ripped open and a, a host of angels, they came down and, and they made this pronouncement. Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That was 2,000 years ago. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a man who got in his car and violently drove through a Christmas parade. He killed 10 um, injured, seriously, dozens. Last week, there was a teenage boy who took a, a gun to school. Apparently, his parents bought the gun for him. He took the gun to school and killed several of his classmates. In China right now, there's a genocide happening against this group of a small sect of Muslims known as the Uyghurs. I could go on and on and on. In our homes, divorce rates are climbing. Uh, in churches, even, there's infighting and backbiting and church splits. And so what we see, we see division, we see destruction, we see war, we see anger, we see hatefulness all over our world. So here's the question today. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, he promised peace. Where's the peace? Where is it? To answer that question, we're going to rewind the clock another 700 years to the time of Isaiah. This was 700 years before Jesus was born. And we're, we're going to figure out where to find peace in the midst of a very crazy and chaotic and oftentimes cruel world. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to his, this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they're famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their God and their king. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future... He will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when they divide spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The, the dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over this kingdom 
to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're present with us in this moment. We can feel it, Lord, but not just in this moment, even in our darkest moment, in our most lonely moments, you are there. And so we've gathered here, we close our eyes, we bow our heads, we open your word, we sing praises to you, we cry out to your name because we realize, Lord, we can't do this without you. Please, Lord, come and have your way in this place. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Just a sinner, I pray that these words will fall on hearts that are ready to receive, Lord, and that we'll take what we're given today and go and change the world. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer, something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can be seated. Isaiah, in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 8, he says, I'm here with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, he's the spokesman of God. He's speaking with the children, the nation, the kingdom of Israel. Uh, This is God's chosen people. Uh, They were called to be a great nation and a great blessing to all the nations. About 200 years before Isaiah writes, uh, the nation of Israel, they split in half. They couldn't get along, they couldn't agree, and so they decided it would be better if we just didn't try and do this together. And at this point in their history, the northern kingdom had embraced the leadership of a wicked king, a king named Ahaz. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, But just so you understand the context of the situation, Ahaz had introduced idol worship in the kingdom of God. He had... uh, desecrated all of the sacred places of worship and really discouraged the worship of the one true God, the God of the Bible. And instead, they worshiped a God named Molech. The Israelites, in worship of Molech, they would take their newborn babies and they would go to a valley called Hinnom. And in this valley, there was a a great fire, a perpetual fire. It was always burning. And they would take their babies and they would throw their babies into this fire. While they threw the babies in the fire, the, the priests and the spiritists and the mediums, they were banging these drums to, drive out, to drown out the, cry, the crying of the babies. And the Israelites, these people who, who should have been praying to God, instead they're chanting incantations to try and connect with evil spiritual forces. Verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living. And so what we see here, the the people of God are going to mediums and spiritists, uh, priests who connect with dark spiritual forces, and they inquire the dead on behalf of the living. That's what's known as necromancy. It's trying to communicate with dead relatives. The people of God who should have been praying to the God that delivered them from Egypt and prepared for them the promised land and and built them this beautiful kingdom. They should have been praying to that God, but instead they went to the tarot cards, and they went to the astrologists, and they went to the Ouija boards. They didn't go to the temple to practice ordinances. They stopped praying to the one true God. They stopped making the sacrifices and celebrating the holy days of the Bible, and instead they went to the seances, and they went to the human sacrifices. Verse 20, Isaiah warns Israel. He says, go to God's instruction and testimony. If you don't, if, you, if they don't speak according to the word, if you don't line yourself up according to the word, there will be no dawn for you. Go to God, trust his law, follow his word, or there will be no dawn for you. Things will not get better. Uh, you will live in eternal darkness. Verse 21, and if you don't follow 
the word of the Lord. If you don't seek out God, instead of these evil spiritual forces, verse 21, you will wander through the land dejected and hungry. No purpose, no vision, no meaning. Uh, Aimlessly roaming through this world, empty, distressed, dejected, angry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. Looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Hateful, violent. Look up to heavens, not in prayer, but in disgust. Instead of blessing the name of the Lord, they curse him. Instead of honoring God as king, they rejected him. Verse 22, as a result, they will look towards the earth and see only distress. For hope, for solutions, for some sort of peace, for some sort of answers, they will look, not to God, they'll look among the earth. Maybe our solution is found somewhere between this mountain and this mountain, somewhere in this force, somewhere in this person or this politics or this situation. And what they'll find as they're looking the earth for their solutions, for their hope, what they'll find is distress, darkness, the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Things won't get better as they look the earth. Instead of looking to God, they're looking on the earth for the solution, for their peace, for their hope. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. More babies sacrificed, more corrupt kings, more plagues, more poverty, more war. Let's just pause right here and acknowledge, isn't this the world that we're currently living in? Especially in our culture, in our society, we have stopped looking to the God of the Bible. We've stopped hoping, putting our peace and our trust in the God of the scriptures and Jesus Christ. And instead, we look to the earth for our hope and for the solutions to our problem. And as a result, people are not growing hopeful. We're not finding solutions. We're not finding answers. As a result, because people are looking to the earth instead of looking to God, things are getting worse. More abortions, more plagues, more war, more injustice, more poverty. It's just getting worse and worse and worse in a world marked by violence and division and hate. Let us not look heavenward and curse God as if this is his fault. You see, the distress and the gloom and the afflictions that the Israelites saw in Isaiah day, the stress and the gloom and the affliction and the distress that we see in our day is a result of us forsaking God as our king, consulting in demon worshipers and witches, serving our own dark and twisted desires. The lack of peace in our world is not because of God. It is because of a lack of God. So what's God's response to the darkness and despair that his people find themselves in? Look at Isaiah 9, 1. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. You boarded up my temples. You erected altars to demons. You abused the most vulnerable. You killed the babies. You consulted witches. You worshiped demons, you use dark magic, you split my kingdom in half. And as Isaiah writes this, God's chosen people are surrounded by a powerful enemy that comes to destroy them. So they know war is in their future and they're not sure what's going to happen. And God says, in spite of all that you've done and in spite of all that you see, in spite of all the darkness that you've perpetrated and in spite of all the darkness that you're living in, nevertheless, in spite of all that, the gloom and the distress of this land will not last forever. It won't be like Zebulun and Naphtali, he says. They were a perpetual punching bag in this region. 
They were in the northern part of this kingdom, and every time that an enemy would come from the north, these were the first two cities they come upon. And so these cities, they build themselves back up, and the enemies would sweep through, and they'd burn it to the ground again. And just as soon as they built up these two cities again, another enemy would sweep through and burn it to the ground. And God says, not of my people. In the future, God will bring, he says, honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, to the Galilee of the nations. In the future, God will bring honor and victory and peace and prosperity to his people. And that future hope will dawn east of the Jordan around the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've been paying attention in our study of Mark, you'll remember that this is where Jesus did most of his ministry, east of the Jordan, in the region of the Sea of Galilee. So Isaiah writes to these faithful men, these faithful men and women, who instead of bowing down to godlessness, they prayed, they cried out to the one true God. And God says to those people, he gives them a promise, a great light will dawn. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. This this light will arise in and around Galilee, in and around the region of Bethlehem, in and around the region of Nazareth. This bright hope for not only faithful Israel, but for all the nations, the Galilee of the nations. A new day, a new life for all those who are living in the land of darkness. What will this new day, this new era, this new life, what will it look like? Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation. I think it's important to be reminded because Western Christianity doesn't think like this. God saves you personally. He saves you individually. You have a personal relationship with Christ. That's a beautiful thing, but we should not stop there. Understand when God wants to bless the world, He doesn't just want to do it individual by individual. He also wants to do it as a nation, as a kingdom. You are saved not just into a personal relationship with Christ. You are saved into a kingdom. And it is through this kingdom that God wants to bless the world. This nation is an advancing kingdom. He says, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. It's an advancing kingdom. It's not a retreating kingdom kingdom. It's not a bunkering down kingdom. It's not a kingdom that hides out and just hope that God comes back and just sucks us up and rescues us from all this. This is a kingdom that pushes through every stronghold the enemy has set up. This is a kingdom that takes enemy ground. It's an advancing kingdom, an enlarging kingdom that is marked by an increasing joy, a celebratory joy. The people have rejoiced before you. They rejoice as if it's at harvest time as the people rejoice when dividing spoils. This is a celebratory joy. It's the kind of joy that you experience at harvest time when you bring in all the spoils from your hard work. When the boss comes in around Christmas time with the big fat Christmas bonus. It's that kind of joy. It's the joy you see in your kids' faces as they're opening all the presents under the Christmas tree. It's a celebratory joy. The kind of joy that you experience when you are dividing the spoils of war. You've won the victory. The team's in the locker room. They're lifting up the trophy. It's that kind of a joy. What's the reason for this celebratory joy? Verse 4, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke. The rod on their shoulder, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Now Isaiah is pointing back to Israel's past, and he's reminding Israel in their darkest moment of another time that they were in a very dark moment. You remember the Midianites 
they came into the promised land against the people of God. The Bible says they were numbered like locusts. And they had so many camels, you couldn't count them. And so they came in, and every time the Israelites would plant a crop, they would come in, they would steal the crop, and they would eat it for themselves. It left the Israelites hungry. It left them destitute. It left them weak. They couldn't even fight back. You remember, in this time, Gideon, God finds Gideon, and he's threshing wheat, which is an outside job. There's dust everywhere. This isn't something you do indoors, but he's threshing wheat in a wine press in an enclosed place. It's basically his basement. He's threshing wheat. Why is he doing that? Because he knows if the Midianites see the dust from this threshing, they're going to come and take everything he's worked for and his family won't eat. And so God meets Gideon in this place and he says, Gideon, I'm going to deliver my people and I'm going to use you. And Gideon says, I, I'm, I'm come from this really weak tribe and I'm like the least of all my... And God says, no, I'm going to use you. And so Gideon gets together an army of God's people and God looks at this army. He says, there's too many of you. And Gideon said, what are you talking about? The Midianites are the most incredible warriors that our world knows. And God says, no, I don't want you to get any credit for this victory that's about to take place. And so Midian, God, God tells uh, Gideon, he says, I want you to winnow down your forces. And so through a series of tests, God goes from this huge army of his people down to just 300 men. And in one night, God used 300 men to defeat 30,000 Midianites in one night. And so Isaiah is pointing back and he said, God will once again shatter he will destroy the burdensome yoke placed on his people. I remember what the Midianites were doing to you. God is going to shatter that oppression. He's going to use the staff and the rod and the weapons used against his people. He's going to shatter them as if they are glass. The Lord will render the enemies of his people, he will render them powerless. To the point that, verse 5, for every trampling boot of battle, the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. The evildoers, the oppressors, will be so utterly defeated that the boots and the uniforms and the shields and the spears and the swords, the weapons and the garments of war will be used as fuel for the fire at the victory parade. The enemy will be so obliterated by God to the point that there will be no need for any military supplies because there will never be another war. Then there will be peace forevermore. What's the catalyst? What brings about this overwhelming victory? What brings about, what initiates this peace that never ends? Verse six, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. The history-altering event is the birth of a baby boy. In and around the region of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan, in a place where nobody thought anything would ever come, a baby is born. A son is given as a gift from heaven, God's only son, the one and only Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Isaiah says that this son that's born from an unlikely place, the government, the right and the responsibility of ruling, the right and the responsibility of ordering life, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll take the weight of that. He'll take the responsibility of that. And that's a cause for celebration. That's a cause for joy. Why? Because when people think about this ruler, he will be named he will be called. He'll be known as. When, when people talk about his character, this is what they'll say of him. They'll say he's a wonderful counselor. 
wonderful, awe-inspiring, awesome, out of this world, higher than the highest heavens, counsel, wisdom, always true, always trustworthy, wisdom that never fails, wisdom that never disappoints, counsel that never misdirects, and all-knowing, all-seeing, everywhere present, tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin, he's a high priest who can relate to the lowest person. He is our wonderful counselor. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the world better than anyone has ever known anything, and he knows how to get us through the darkness. He's a wonderful counselor. They'll say of him, he's a mighty God. Just the power of his voice caused the universe to explode into existence. The Bible says that he unfurls the cosmos like a scroll. And so the weight of your life gets so burdensome, you get so overwhelmed, you get so perplexed, you get so beat up and you think, I can't handle anymore. And all the things that overwhelm all the people of the earth, the Bible says that God holds the weight of all of that in his hands and it feels as if it's a piece of paper. Nothing is too hard for our God. The Bible says that the nations plot in vain and the Lord laughs. In the end, all the evil nations will gather their forces against the one true God in Jerusalem. They'll bring all their nuclear weapons, all their lasers, all those things we don't know anything about that the FBI and the CIA and China and everybody else is hiding from us. Bring all the weapons against the one true God and with one word, he will destroy every single evil army. He is the, the, the God who rises, makes kings and kingdoms rise and fall. He is the deluge sender, the sea splitter, the water walker, the demon slayer. He is death's destroyer. He's the great physician. He's the miracle worker. He's the creative healer. He's the way maker. He is the Lord who provides. He is the Lord who heals. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is almighty God and nothing is impossible for him. He is our eternal father. He is the everlasting father. He is a father forever. He is a father who never wanes in his loyalty toward his children. A loving provider who sends bread from heaven and sweet water from a rock. A gentle disciplinarian who chastises his beloved children for their own good. He is a forgiving dad who watches the horizon waiting for his wayward son to come back home. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the king who dies so that his people can win the victory. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is the eternal father. And he is the prince of peace. In other words, Jesus is the prince of a place called peace. In other words, where Jesus reigns and rules, there will be peace. How will Jesus make peace? How will all of the wars end? How will all the enmity and strife and division and hatefulness and anger, how will it all end? There are three options. One, compromise. Jesus will enter into negotiations with humanity and they will come to mutually agreeable terms. That's one option. 
Second option is Christ surrenders to humanity. Mankind forces God in some way to submit to mankind's will. The third option, humanity surrenders to Christ. Which one seems most likely? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of his dominion and peace, there will be no end. I want you to notice how his government and peace on the earth are intertwined. The more the prince's dominion increases, the farther that peace extends upon the earth and into eternity. No end to his reign and rule. No end to the lengths of his authority and sovereignty over the earth. And then no end to the peace on the earth. Why will his rule and his reign bring peace on the earth because he is a just and righteous ruler. On the throne and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He is a just and righteous ruler. He is just. Everything he does is more than fair. And so as he's making declarations, no one will argue as to whether or not this is a fair decision. Even the demons who are burning in hell will not argue with God about their place in eternity because they know that God has been more than fair with them. Everything he does is just and everything he does is right. We can't imagine the perfection of the manifest kingdom of God. There is no crying or mourning or pain in that place. Everything is as it should be. Nothing could be better. The heavenly kingdom is so perfect that you will never want it to end. It is so perfect that you'll be glad that it goes on and on and on forevermore. And this kingdom, it is established and it is upheld, not by the effort or the will or the skill or the intellect or the resources of the very best men and women on the earth, not by that, but by the zeal of the Lord. You see, it's his plan. It's his kingdom, and it's his passion. And so there is peace in the heavenly kingdom because everyone and everything has submitted to the complete and total will of Christ. All in agreement that he is Lord, that he is good, and that he should reign completely. We will worship him, we will love him, and we will trust him to rule over us in every way. You see, Christ brings peace by overpowering humanity. Let me say that again. Christ brings peace by dominating humanity. He will overpower us either by his amazing grace or by his righteous judgment. Philippians says, one day every knee will bow. In heaven, on the earth, and under the birth. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Upon his glorious return, angels and demons, kings and queens, sinners and saints will all bow before him, either in worship or in terror. The faithful will be rewarded with an eternal kingdom. The rebellious will be judged with an unending fire. And on that day, there will be peace forevermore. Now, with all that, there's a couple takeaways that I want you to have today. Number one, don't associate peace with a place. 
When people ask you, how are you doing? Chances are you're like me and you say, well, I'm busy because we're all busy. Why are we so busy? Why don't we so stressed out all the time? I think that we all have some idealized vision of a future reality where all of our stressors will just go away and then we'll finally have peace. And so we say so busy, we say so stressed because we're trying, to, we're trying to get to that place, we're trying to work towards that place, we're trying to maintain that place where we'll have peace. And so we say things like this, I'll be glad when. I'll be glad when I graduate or when I get a car or when I get a job or when I get married. Some people say, I'll be glad when I get divorced. Some people say, I'll be glad when I get out of debt. I'll be glad when I retire. I'll be glad when everything gets back to normal. Or we say, if I can just get through, if I can just get through the holidays or tax time or this pandemic or this uh, political cycle, if I can just get through all the laundry in my house, then I'll have peace. What we're really saying is that peace is a place or a thing. Peace is found in enough money in the bank. Peace is found in the right people being in office. Peace is found on a beach with a cold drink in your hand and some sand between your toes. The kingdom of Israel believed that peace could be found in a place, and so that's why they, they, they divided from the southern kingdom. They said, all we do is fight. We can't come to an agreement about who's going to be the king, and so we're just going to go start our own kingdom. And then once we are in control of our own kingdom, then we'll have peace. But what they found is the moment they split away from the southern tribes... A even greater enemy was assembling north of them, the Assyrians, who would soon come and destroy them all. You see, peace isn't found on earth. You won't find peace in a place or in a thing because there are stressors there too. The answer to your problem isn't finding a new job or a new lover or a new city. There are idiots working at that other job too. In that new city, they can't drive on the bypass either. The new lover has morning breath too. (laughs) Everywhere you run, you'll find problems or problems will find you. Peace is not found on earth. It's not found in a comfortable house, in a pile of cash under your bed. It's not found in the right people, the right set of people being in office. That's not peace. It's not found in a treaty or in a compromise. The best that humans can do in their peacemaking is delayed conflict. That's the best that we can do. Peace is not found in a place. Peace is found in our connection to a person. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace. And so if you're here today and you're looking for peace, you're anxious, you're stressed, you're depressed, you're looking, Lord, I need peace. Don't run to a place, run to a person. Don't trust the things of this world. Don't trust your bank account. Don't trust a politician. Don't trust a YouTube video. Don't trust the self-help book. Trust in Jesus Christ. He is our wonderful counselor. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how to get you through this. He is our mighty God. It's hard for you, but nothing is hard for him. He is our everlasting father. He loves to love you. He has good intentions for your life. He is the prince of peace. You see, Jesus was the catalyst for history. He is the fulfillment of the promises that Isaiah made 700 years before he was born. He is the solution to the problems that all of humanity is experiencing. He is the dawn of a new day. He is the hope of a brighter tomorrow. Peace is found in him. Here's the other takeaway. Peace is about surrender. 
We think peace is control. We think we'd have peace if everybody would just do what I say. Then we'll have peace. If everybody would just get out of my way on the bypass, then I would drive in peace. If people would just listen to me at work, then I'd have peace. If people would just agree with my politics, then I would have peace. I used to think I'm going to get married one of these days and I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to be the head of my house and everybody's going to listen to me and we're going to have peace. And then I got married. And then I had girls. The older I get, the older I get, the more I realize there are so many things that are outside of my control. I can't control what they do in Frankfurt or Washington, D.C., or even the school board down the street. I can't control what other people say or think about me. I can't control what decisions Coach Cal makes or Mark Stoops makes. I can't control how I feel half the time. I can't control all these gray hairs coming up on my beard. I can't control that. Keep on coming. Trying to control all these things that you have no control over, that's not the way to peace. That's how you're going to find more stress and anxiety and get more angry. Control is no way to peace. Trying to control is the way to frustration. It's the way to anxiety. So instead of trying to control everything, the Lord commands us, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Jesus said, there are so many things in this world that are outside of your control. In, in, in John Chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you're going to come up against things that you do everything that you can do to affect change, and it's still not going to be enough. You're going to have trouble. You're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be stressed out. But take heart. What? I have overcome the world. I know it's hard for you. It's not hard for me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who are weak and weary, and I will give you Rest. Jesus is the prince of peace. And so if you want peace, make Jesus the king of your life. Surrender control of your life to the wonderful counselor, to the mighty God, to the everlasting father. When you allow Jesus to fight the battles that are too big for you to fight, guess what? You'll have peace. When you trust Jesus to lead you through your darkest times, Lord, I don't know what to do. If you trust Jesus in those moments, you will have peace. When you rest in the completed work of Christ on the cross, no matter how perplexing the world may seem, you'll know this is going to turn out for my good, for God's glory, and you can have peace. Peace is surrender. Now, let me connect that with our activity. Do you want to see peace on earth? Do you want to see people stop taking kids, stop taking guns to school and shooting and killing other kids. Do you want to see that? Do you want to see mothers stop hating their babies so much and growing in their belly that they stop ripping their babies limb from limb from their womb? Do you want to see that? Do you want to see the end of war between China and America and Russia in the middle? Do you want to see an end to all these things? If you want to see an end to all of the strife and all the division in our world, the answer isn't to hunker down and hide out until Jesus comes back. The answer isn't to compromise with darkness. We are not a negotiating people. You understand that? 
We are part of an advancing kingdom. Dominion is our mandate. If you want peace, you have to wage war. Wage war against the powers of darkness. Tear down every demonic worldview stronghold. Take enemy ground. What's our weapon? The power of the Holy Spirit and the word of our testimony. It's, I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I have a story to tell of how Jesus changes everything. How did Gideon defeat 30,000 Midianites with 300 men? God instructed Gideon, take your 300 men and put a lantern in in a clay pot. And then go stand in the middle of the darkest part of the night, going and stand around the Midianites' camp. And at just the right time, shout out for the glory of Lord and then smash that clay pot so that they see the light hidden inside. That is our mission. That is our mandate. That when we step outside of this church, that we have a light inside of us that nobody can deny, that the darkness can't hold back. And we open it up and we say for the glory of Jesus Christ, he is the king. Bow in submission to him and then we will have peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the promises that you have made. You have been so faithful in every generation. You have not left us. You have not forgotten about us. You have not forsaken us. Remind us even today as we look on our Twitter feeds, as we look on our Facebook page, as we talk to our people that we work with and we see all sorts of problems. We see all sorts of division. We see all sorts of stress. And we don't know how things can get better. Help us to trust you that you sent a son. A son who's the the dawn of a new day. A son who the government will be on his shoulders. That he will rule and reign. And Lord, I pray, I pray that he will start with us. Lord, may each and every one of us surrender control of our lives to you that we might seek peace, not in the things of this world, but in our connection to you. Lord, I pray if there's any person in this room who's far from you, who's living a rebellious life, I pray that you will call them to repentance, understanding that one day they will bow before you, whether it's today in, in worship or whether it's a millennia from now in terror, they will bow. Lord, may they bow and be saved instead of being bowing and be damned. Lord, today's the day of salvation. I pray that, that if there's anybody here that's not connected to you, that they will be today. Lord, we give you this time. Have your way, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. And as we do, this is a song of celebration. You know, I, I, I read Isaiah, and I say, it says that they celebrate, they celebrate like they just won something. How come we don't celebrate like we just won something? How come we don't? How come we don't live out our faith as if we actually have the victory? It's not in doubt. It's not in doubt. Jesus took it all. He took the absolute worst that anybody and anything, the whole world could put on him. He took it all. They put him in the ground. Three days later, he came back to life. He says, is that the best you got? Is that the best you got? You can't beat me. You can't defeat me. That's what Christ says. And he says, because I have overcome, you are an overcomer. And so as we sing, as we take these emblems, we're reminded we have the victory in Christ. And not only do we have the victory, we have the solution. We have the solution to all the world's problems is found in Christ. Do you really believe that? Well, sing like you believe it.
Take these emblems like you believe it. Celebrate it like you believe it. Go and tell the world like you believe it. So as we sing this song, take these emblems. Be reminded the victory you have in Christ. If you're here today and you're carrying a heavy burden and you just can't see how all these things can apply to you, will you let me pray with you today? Sometimes just to have somebody put hands on you and pray that the Lord will supernaturally lift that burden off of you, you'll walk out of here, I promise you, you'll walk out of here with a lighter load. So as we sing this song, come.